Let's take our Bibles at this time, and I want to turn to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. If you'd turn there with me, Ezekiel chapter 22. Uh, I don't typically uh, tend to preach too much on themes uh, related to specific days. So in other words, uh, today's Father's Day, and just because it's Father's Day, don't expect me every year uh, to preach to just the fathers, or on Mother's Day to just the mothers. That's just not been my style. I'm not against people uh, who do that. I just personally haven't felt led of the Lord to do so. But today, I, I really do want to address an issue that I believe pertains directly to men and fathers, and particularly as we're seeing a crisis in our world, in our nation, and even in our churches. And that crisis is a lack of men, a lack of godly men who will stand up for what's right, who will stand for truth, and uh, men who will stand before men on behalf of God and before God on behalf of men. And I think you'll see more about what I'm talking about this morning as we read our text and as we get into the message Ezekiel chapter 22, if you're there and you're able to stand, we can stand together one last time in honor of the word of God as we read beginning in verse number 23, Ezekiel 22 and verse number 23. It says, and the word of the Lord came unto me, this is Ezekiel the prophet, he says, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, say unto her, this is to the city of Jerusalem, say unto her. Thou art a land that is not cleansed, nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst of her, or in the midst thereof. Like a roaring lion ravening the prey, they have devoured souls, they have taken the treasure and precious things, they have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things and have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And then, of course, the famous verse here, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them and have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that your word would have preeminence and that your Holy Spirit would have free reign to speak to us, to make application to these truths um, in our lives, in our church, in our nation. Uh, Lord, would you help us to see the need for 
men of God and women of God to stand for truth and for right, to stand before you for the land, for your people, for our families. And Lord, I just pray that you would, from among us, raise up specifically men, but also ladies who will say, I'll be the one to stand in the gap. And Lord, I just pray that you would have your perfect will and way in the service. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you're not familiar with the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is one of the major prophets in the Bible. The, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament are often referred to as major prophets or minor prophets, not because uh, major prophets have any more significance than minor prophets, they're just longer books. <laughs> and a lot of times they, they get kind of overlooked, especially uh, books like Ezekiel, because there's a lot of depth there, and sometimes you might be reading through the Bible and kind of scratch your head and say, I'm not even sure what I'm reading here, uh, especially in the first few chapters of Ezekiel, it gets a little confusing, but I'll just give you a little bit of background here. Ezekiel was a Levitical priest, he was a priest of God who was part of the, the, the Babylonian captivity. He'd been carried away uh, with kind of the first wave, it seems like, of, of the, the captives that were pulled out of Israel and, and ultimately out of Jerusalem. And, and they, they were there as captives in Babylon. And there, Ezekiel, in his 30th year of life, which was the year that he would have assumed his role as a priest, uh, is sitting among the, the river Chebar there, uh, among the captives in some sort of a refugee camp. And the Lord comes to him with a vision, with revelation, to give him information and a calling. He's supposed to take a message to the people of Israel that are now in captivity. And much of his message really was, uh, was given, his calling, his ministry essentially was to, to make the people aware that the situation that they found themselves in was a consequence of their sin and disobedience to God. And so, so much of what we read in the book of Ezekiel is the Lord kind of pointing a finger and saying, listen, you made me do this, and this is why things are the way that they are. And, and he, he addresses issues and problems within Israel, within even the, 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 the nation of Judah, and, and, and explains to them what their problem is. Well, here in our chapter, he is addressing particularly the city of Jerusalem and their issues and why, uh, why there is wrath being poured out on God's people. And I want you to notice in verse number 24, he begins to talk about the corruption that had taken place. I want you to note this corruption because this is very important and I think that maybe if you uh, have a little bit of an imagination, it's not too much of a stretch to say that this corruption is something that we have seen with our own eyes in modern times as well. Notice this corruption, verse number 24, Son of man, say unto her, Thou art a land that is not cleansed, nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof. This, he, he addresses this corruption, and the first part of it is religious corruption. There's a prophecy, or there's a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof. Like a roaring lion ravening the prey, they have devoured souls, they have taken the treasure and precious things, they have made her many widows in the midst thereof. So here's what he's saying, there is religious corruption. What is that first, the first thing he mentions about their religious corruption, I call it burglary. They were stealing from the people, the prophets 
were not prophesying and, and obeying God. They weren't fulfilling a ministry that God had given them. They weren't preaching the truth of God. They were involved in prophesying for their own personal gain. They had selfish motives and greed. They were hirelings. As you look around the world today, how many people do you see that claim to be ministers of God, ministers of the gospel, supposedly name the name of Christ, but when you look at their life and their lifestyle, it becomes very obvious that what they are doing is really nothing more than an elaborate scheme to bilk people out of their money and, and to, to profit themselves and to make themselves uh, lavish lifestyles. Well, this is what was happening there. They, their, their prophets, their religious leaders, the preachers of the day, rather than being servants of the Lord, were servants of self and money. And Jesus made it very clear in the New Testament, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't have it both ways. Well, these people were very clearly on the side of money. Then you look at verse number 26. Not only was there burglary by the prophets, there was blasphemy by the priests, because it says in verse 26, her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. Now, the word holy literally means to be sanctified and set apart. And what he's saying is they have taken these priests, these religious leaders, those who've been appointed to lead my people according to the law, these people have taken that which I have sanctified and called holy and they have profaned it. They have made it unholy. Uh, they have, notice it says, put no difference between the holy and profane. They have violated the law of God. They blasphemed the name of the Lord and then they blended the holy and profane. They made no difference Notice what it says there. They showed no difference between the unclean and the clean. Isn't it amazing how black and white the Bible is when it comes to right and wrong, truth and error, and yet how confused religion is about these matters? Some of the most well-known ministers in our society today when asked about serious issues of morality such as homosexuality and abortion and things that the Bible is very plain and very clear on when they're pressed about these things you know what the response is well I don't know you know these are complex and complicated issues now, don't get me wrong, sin complicates matters, but it's not complicated to know what God thinks about these things. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to hate people. We ought to love everyone. We love the sinner, but that doesn't mean that we condone the sin. And when God says it is sin, it is sin. And yet, here they are. They've made no difference between the holy and profane. They, they, they've, they've showed no difference between the unclean and the clean. And here's what has happened. Listen, I don't want to get on a hobby horse, but I, I want to just be real clear about this. You can go into a multitude of churches, or at least so-called churches today, and what you will see taking place is really nothing more than a Christian face that's been put on worldly entertainment. The music is very much, it's, it's not only worldly, it's carnal and fleshly. 
it's shallow, it's theologically shallow, uh, and, and sometimes just theologically inaccurate. And the emphasis and the focus is, we want you to feel welcome and comfortable. I see this even on, on websites of scriptural churches, it bothers me. You know, they'll, they'll have in there a lot of times this, this uh, you know, frequently asked questions. And one of the things is, is there a dress code at your church? And a lot of times under that, they will say, we don't have a dress code at our church. Our primary concern is that you feel comfortable when you're here. Now, let me just clarify this. We don't have a dress code at our church. You come as you are. We're glad, everyone is welcome. Come on in. But that doesn't mean that the motivation is we want you to be comfortable. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind, and I don't want to turn anyone away, but should not our primary motivation be that we want God to be glorified? Shouldn't that be the first consideration in our mind is what, what, how can we honor the Lord, not how can we make visitors feel welcome? I'm just talking about priority. But what happens is when we shift the focus from what honors God to what do people want and what's going to make people feel most comfortable and how can we make sure not to push them away, when that becomes our focus, what ends up happening is a lot of times we start blending holy and profane. We need to remember here, here there, there is a difference between holy and profane. God is holy, we are sinful. We don't deserve to be in his presence, but we've been called into his presence. We've been invited into his presence by the blood of Jesus Christ. But he also expects us to be holy. Be holy, for I am holy. And so we've got to be careful not to treat what we're doing here in the house of the Lord as we're trying to meet with God. We don't want to treat that in some light and flippant manner. This is serious business, what we're doing in the house of the Lord. Don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Don't belittle sin and call that which God calls profane, call it acceptable. There was burglary by the prophets. There was blasphemy by the priests. There was a blending of the holy and profane. But then there was blindness to the truth. Look at the, the end of verse number 26. It says, uh, And have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Here are the priests. <laughs> Throughout the Old Testament, God made it very clear the Sabbath was to be observed. It was not only to be observed in the sense that they were to do no work in it, but it was a day that was to be set apart, that was to be holy. It was a day that was to, uh, to, to where the Lord was to be remembered. It was the Lord's day. Now, we understand we worship on the first day of the week. We give God the... This is a New Testament concept, the first day of the week being the Lord's day. But we're not under the, the, the law and the expectation of the Sabbath as they were in the Old Testament. But we have to understand this was a big deal in God's law. To take the Sabbath day and make it something unholy, making it about themselves, making it about work and profit and whatever else, this was a violation of God's law. They were literally hiding their eyes from God's commandments. In other words, I know that God said that we are to honor the Sabbath, that we're to keep it holy, but we're going to close our eyes and pretend he didn't say that. So this was a, this was a big problem. Their, their religious system, and it wasn't just religion, their system of leadership, 
spiritual leadership was flawed and it was corrupted. And then not only was there corruption on a religious level, there was corruption on a political level. Have we seen this before? Look what it says. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves, ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls and to get dishonest gain. This message is not about politics and politicians. I don't care which party you tend to vote for. I will tell you this. Most of our political leaders have blood on their hands for the purpose of dishonest gain. There is corruption at every level. The fact that we would allow millions upon millions upon millions of innocent babies to be killed every year for no reason other than inconvenience. That's actually not the reason. The reason is money. Listen, there is blood on the hands of our political leaders. Presidents, senators, governors, representatives, through and through. There's corruption. There's religious corruption. There's political corruption. You know what happens when you have religious leaders who are corrupt and political leaders who are corrupt? The people following them also become corrupt. And the religious corruption and the political corruption led to a general corruption of all of the nation of Israel. Because notice what it says in verse number 29. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery. The people followed in the footsteps. Why? Well, the, the preachers are corrupt and the politicians are corrupt. Oh, by the way, the preachers have told us that this is okay. Look at verse 28. And her prophets have daubed them. This is those princes, the political leaders. They have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. This is serious stuff. Because they're taking... What, what's going on, and, and the, 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 the religious leaders are kind of propping up these corrupt political leaders and saying, hey, it's no big deal, and, and, and you know, don't pay any attention basically to the man behind the curtain here, right? Because God said this is okay when God did not say it's okay. And to take something that, that, that is corrupt and sinful and wicked and say that God has said this when God never said it, is, is the absolute epitome of corruption and wickedness. We cannot stand for that. God does not stand for that. Speaking in the name of God when God has not spoken. So this is so... It has so permeated society that the leaders have followed oppression and lies and now the people are doing that. Verse 29, the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. The leaders led them in the way of corruption. They led them down a road of selfishness and disobedience to God. They first belittled God's truth, God's word, 
And by the way, when you throw out God and his standards and his morals, there's no other foundation. There's nothing else to stand on. And so the people just followed in it. And now the whole land, through and through, maybe not everyone, but this corruption extended to the general population as well. And God says this is the reason. This, this is, this is what, was, what is happening in the land. You see, when leaders fail, their followers will go with them. When church leaders fail, when pastors start leading congregations astray, leading them away from the Word of God into man-centric philosophies and man-made ideologies, the churches and the people within those churches, sadly, become casualties. When political leaders fail to uphold the laws of a nation and the spirit of, of, of for instance, in our case, a constitution that... That, that is designed for the good of the people and for the good of the nation, when they fail to uphold that and they become motivated by their own personal gain and selfish motivations, what happens is the nation begins to follow in their corruption. Let me just bring this to maybe some reality in our lives. When fathers fail... Their children often follow in their footsteps. I think a great example of this in the Bible would be David and Solomon. David was a great king, and he was a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. I'm thankful for David and his life. I'm thankful that we have so much of the Bible. We've got so much of the book of Psalms because, because of David. God used him to do that. I'm thankful for a man like him. But uh, though he was a great king... Though he was a man of God, he really failed as a husband and as a father. And one of his primary areas of failure is that he did not follow God's design and pattern for marriage being between one man and one woman. And he multiplied wives to himself. And, and David had multiple wives and he had multiple children with these different wives. It created confusion in his family. It created a lot of problems. You remember, ultimately... When his proclivity for women got out of hand, he ended up committing adultery with Bathsheba and having a child with her out of wedlock. And we look at that and we say, wow, that was a failure, a leadership failure on David's part. Let me ask you, how did that play out in the lives of his children? Well, basically, almost none of his children turned out very well. Some of them ended up dying premature deaths because of their rebellion against God, some of them just ended up kind of going the way of the wicked, but then you have one that kind of stands out, a man by the name of Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, the one picture of success from David's parenting, and you know what his downfall was? Solomon loved many strange women. And his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. Isn't it interesting that Solomon's downfall also happened to be his father's downfall? It's amazing how that works, but there is something to the notion of generational sins. And I'm just saying that fathers, we need to really understand and, and, and realize that most likely our children are going to follow in our footsteps to one degree or another 
And that ought to be a very sobering reality for us. What you make a priority in your life, most likely your children will make a priority in theirs. I've seen it before. Uh, a, A dad who is absent often because... He's busy working all the time. You know what their children aspire to? Being successful in the world and making lots of money. A father who's consumed with sports tends to produce children who love sports and that becomes their life and consumes them. Uh, I remember, uh, I've I've been around uh, plenty of of parents and fathers who, man, they were big into hunting and fishing and guess what their boys love to do? Many of the same things. Why? Because children tend to follow in the footsteps of their fathers. Think about the the responsibility that's placed on leaders and, and the expectation that God puts on those that He's put in positions of leadership. And fathers, understand that you have great influence on the lives of your children. And most likely, they will follow in your footsteps. And so... This really puts some pressure on leaders, right? Religious leaders, political leaders, and leaders within homes to be what we ought to be because what we do affects others who are following. So there was corruption that was taking place in Israel. But I want you to notice this call, this call that the Lord gives. He says in verse number 30, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Here's what amazes me. God has just taken the last several verses and he has detailed corruption from top to bottom. (laughs) I mean, religiously, prophets, priests, princes, those in authority, those in leadership, and ultimately it's permeated all of society, the general population. There's corruption from the top to the bottom. But here's what he says. But I was looking for a man. He didn't say I was looking for some men. He said I was looking for a man who would make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land. This amazes me how often we see in the Bible this pattern that God is willing to show mercy Because of a small number. In this case, only one man he was looking for to make up the hedge. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse number 2, For the transgression of a land, many are the princes thereof. In other words, the idea is there are plenty of people that are willing to lead a nation into corruption and transgression and sin. But the end of that verse says, but by a man of understanding and knowledge, the state thereof shall be prolonged. In other words, God is willing to actually show mercy and prolong and and withhold for a period of time his wrath being poured out if there's just a man who will stand for what is true and what is right. But by a man of understanding and knowledge, the state thereof shall be prolonged. Or we could look at Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Those two cities that had been overcome with corruption and wickedness. And God looked down upon them and said, I'm going to destroy them because their, their wickedness is come up before me. And Abraham came before the Lord and was pleading for them. And ultimately he got it down and said, Lord, if you can find just ten righteous men, just ten righteous people within that city. Now he started at 50. I tend to think that Abraham was looking at these wicked cities and he knew his nephew Lot was there. And he's probably going through in his head and he's thinking, well, Lot and his wife and their children and and in-laws and their grandchildren, you know, maybe there's 50 people who are righteous in that city. Oh, but wait a minute here. His son-in-law, he's a wicked man. and Oh, that one, that one daughter, she, she doesn't really love the Lord. And uh, Okay, maybe 45, Lord. Oh, but I forgot. Yeah, these children, they've kind of gone off. And may, What about 40? What about 30? And ultimately, he gets it down to 10. He says, "Ten, if, Lord, if there are just 10, if there are 10... Righteous people in those cities, will you spare the destruction of the entire city? You know what God said? If I find ten righteous there, I won't destroy it. All that wickedness, Sodom and Gomorrah, the epitome. I mean, this is the standard by which we measure other places and wickedness. We talk, oh, that place is like Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it's, it's wicked. We, these cities were wicked. They were the epitome of wickedness. And God said, if there are just ten righteous people in those cities, I'll spare it. God is so merciful. God is so merciful. And so often He spares His He withholds his wrath because of a few. And apparently at times only one. Who are willing to stand for truth and right. I can't help but think as I look at our nation and I see so much wickedness. And I I believe that we are witnessing the downfall of our nation. But folks, it hasn't happened yet. We're still living in the blessings of God. And it sure isn't because we deserve it. I can't help but think that some of the reason that God's wrath has been withheld is because there has been a remnant of His people who love Him, serve Him. We've we've sent missionaries all around the world to proclaim His truth. And I believe that, that the Lord has stayed His wrath to some degree because of those things. But there's coming a day of recompense, friend. But here we find this, this, this idea. He says, I'm, I was looking for a man. I was looking for someone who... And notice this. He says, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap. I, I, I want you to notice these words. Before me for the land. In other words, he's not just saying, I was looking for one righteous person. I believe that there had to have been righteous people within Israel. I mean, we know some of them. We know some of the ones who are carried away in the captivity, and we know them to be righteous people. Ezekiel would have been one of them. Daniel would have been one of them, and his three friends. There were righteous people within the city. But he's not just saying, I was looking for a righteous man. He said, I was looking for someone, for a man who would stand in the gap before me for the land. You know what I believe this is? This was a call to intercession. The, the Webster's defines the word intercede 
as, as to mediate, to interpose, to make intercession, to act between parties with a view to reconcile those who differ or contend. When I read this verse of Scripture, I understand it to mean that God was looking for someone who would come before Him on behalf of the nation and plead with Him for His mercy. I want to show you an example of this. If you hold your place here in Ezekiel 22, go back to the book of Exodus, if you would. Exodus chapter number 32. Exodus 32. And in this chapter, what we find, Israel or uh, Moses has been in, in the mountain there with the Lord at Mount Sinai, getting the law, and Israel is getting impatient. They've made for themselves a golden calf to worship it. And it says in verse number 9, Exodus 32, verse 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation." And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore, wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants to whom thou hast to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidst unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I will give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Look at verse 14. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Then look down to verse number 32. Moses once again says to the Lord, Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin... And then you just see this long hyphen and a semicolon. I think that's the only place in the Bible you find that. It's really interesting. It's like he starts down this path and then he just kind of runs out of words. If thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore, now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angels shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. What, what just happened here? God literally said to Moses, I'm going to destroy this people, and I'm going to fulfill my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through you. I'm going to make this great nation of you. Now, God could have done that, and it would have been no violation whatsoever of the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was totally within the bounds of that covenant for God to do that. But Moses, who loved the people that God had given to him, said, Lord, please don't do that. Please do not destroy them. And he pleads with them. And he says, please, please don't do this. Remember your covenant. Remember your people. And he even said, Lord, if you won't forgive them, Blot my name out of your book. In other words, let their sin be upon me. Imagine this degree of passion, this degree of, 
of love for people to say, Lord, if you're not willing to forgive them, would you put their sin on my shoulders? Paul said something like that about the Israelites. He said, I could wish myself a curse from Christ for my brethren. I mean, there, 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 was, a, there was a passion. There was a, a desire here. There was a, a pleading with God on behalf of the people. And I want you to notice a very important thing that God said at the very beginning of this. Maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. Verse number 10. God said to Moses, Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them. God says, basically, here's here's how I read that. Now if you disagree with me, we can talk later. I'll tell you why you're wrong. No, I'm kidding. Here's how I, how I understand that. God was ready to destroy the people and fulfill his covenant through Moses. But he was waiting for Moses to stop pleading for the people first. And when Moses continued to plead for the people, God said, okay, I'll, do, I'll fulfill this covenant through them. Let me alone and I'll do this. You stop praying, Moses, and I'll destroy him. Moses didn't stop praying. Boy, there are a couple million people that were probably thankful that Moses didn't stop praying. That there was someone that would intercede. That there was someone who would go before the Lord and plead for them. You see, prayer does make a difference. Intercession does make a difference. God is concerned about that. Notice he says again, as we go back to our text in Ezekiel 22 verse 30, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land. I I was looking for a man who would stand before God on behalf of these men. But he said, I found none. And then I want you to notice the condemnation. Look at this, this statement, verse 31. Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. It's amazing to me that God doesn't say, I poured out my indignation because of all of their wickedness. That, that was the cause, we understand. That was the reason that he had indignation. But the therefore isn't in reference to verses 24 through 29. The, the therefore is a reference to verse 30. The therefore is the the statement, I poured out my indignation because I couldn't find a man. I just want to say, men of God, you have a far greater influence and power than than you might believe is true. God said the reason that that the people are in captivity is not just because of their wickedness and corruption, it's because there was no one who would come before me. And can I ask this question today with some degree of seriousness? Where are the men... in our nation who will stand before people on behalf of God and speak the truth 
Thus saith the Lord. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. Sin is sin. Where are the people that are willing to stand up before the people for God and speak truth? And where are the people that are willing to stand before God for men and plead for them? I can't help but think that the downfall of a nation is when God's people quit praying and standing. And the downfall of a church is when there are no men who will stand for what is right and pray that the Lord would have his way, that he would bind Satan and preserve his church. And that the downfall of families is often when the father is either absent or is unwilling to stand. Where are the Moseses, the Joshuas, the Abrahams, who are willing to say, this is what's true, this is what's right, and this is the way that we're going to go. And then we'll go to God and say, Lord, be merciful. Be merciful to our nation. Be merciful in our church. Be merciful to our family. And preserve us. God said, I sought for a man. Could it be that even today, he's seeking for men? And if so, who is willing to be those men?